Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. We're here today to share the first episode in a partnership that we're so excited to launch uh, with our good friends over at UIC and the Sawyer Seminar. Since 2017, UIC's social, economic, and racial justice faculty and the Social Justice Initiative have hosted two Mellon Foundation-funded Sawyer Seminar Series, in which they convene academics, activists, and artists from all over the world. The seminars engage pressing questions around racial capitalism and social hierarchies, intersectional systems of oppression, freedom dreams, heterodox realities, and radical alternatives. So, some shit that we would talk about here on Ergo. This year, since they can't meet in person, they have partnered with us to turn the seminar into a podcast series. So over the next few months, each month you're going to get an episode of Ergo, not hosted by us, hosted by someone from UIC involved in the Sawyer Seminar, leading a conversation around radical alternatives, radical care. So excited to be able to help publish and amplify this space. Uh, I've participated in some Sawyer seminars over the years. And for me personally, it's been really significant and impactful, not only as you know an avenue to learning more about some theoretical issues or, or some movement dynamics, but to really feel connected and a part of you know some national and global thrust um, and to connect what's going on on the South Side or in Chicago. Uh, to a larger context, and then really um, the importance of putting movement and in, in intellectual work, but also bringing theory to movement space. We're really excited to be able to help bring this to the world, because if we weren't in this pandemic reality, this might not be happening for everybody. <laughs> so on this first episode, we are sharing a conversation between Professor Stacey Sutton and Professor Barbara Ransby, two Ergo alums, among many other accolades. Um, the conversation focuses on a new project that UIC is launching called the Social Justice Portal Project. We wanted to give a little context on what the project is um, so that then when they jump into conversation about what they're hoping it does, you'll, you'll know what they're talking about. So the Social Justice Portal Project is a collaborative think tank that crosses disciplinary boundaries to address the urgent questions of social justice faced by our communities. Portal Project seeks to forge collective prospects for an equitable future by bringing together activists, scholars, organizers, and artists in critical investigations. They have an amazing roster of folks from outside of the city that they're bringing in to be in conversation with local organizers and artists. Um, you hear some of those names, some names familiar to Ergo. Uh, and really, it, I think it's a beautiful project bringing people together to do some of that long-term visioning work. So that when people say, all right, you're trying to tear this down, what are you going to replace it with? We have some answers or at least some guideposts and some directions to, to work toward. Um, so I'm excited to see how the Portal Project evolves. And we're excited to kick off this Sawyer Seminar Spotlight here on Ergo with this conversation between Stacey Sutton and Barbara Ransby. Let's get to it. School of more stays like I'm doing a seminar. I'm doing a seminar. I'm doing a seminar. <laughs> Welcome to the University of Illinois at Chicago's Mellon Foundation funded Sawyer Seminar Series. Um, this is the first in the series. I'm Stacy Sutton, 
I'm an associate professor at UIC in the Department of Urban Planning and Policy, and I'm also the associate director of applied research and uh, faculty engagement at UIC's Social Justice Initiative. And delighted to be here with uh, Dr. Barbara Ransby. Um, but before we get into the conversation around um, the Portal Project, I want to just give a little background in terms of the Sawyer Seminar. So in 2017, UIC's Social, Economic, and Racial Justice Faculty, which we call SURGE, we had the opportunity to uh, receive a Sawyer Seminar uh, funding. That gave us the opportunity to convene progressive scholars, activists, and artists both locally and globally, to engage some of the pressing questions related to social hierarchies, uh, political and economic oppression, um, the the idea of freedom dreams, uh, various heterodox perspectives and radical alternatives. One thing we learned that some of these radical alternatives are already being practiced. Um, And so we kind of held that and, and, and thought more deeply about that in our second Sawyer seminar, which we began in 2019. So This is kind of a a building on those conversations. So as I said before, I'm here with Barbara Ransby, a distinguished professor of African-American studies, gender and women's studies, history at UIC. She's published dozens of books and essays, both kind of within scholarly uh, venues, as well as for popular audiences. She's the author of an award-winning biography of, of civil rights activist Ella Baker entitled Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision. And her most recent book is Making All Black Lives Matter. Dr. Ransby is also, and perhaps most proudly, she is an activist. Today, Dr. Ransby has joined us in her, her role as the director of UIC's Social Justice Initiative. Um, There's a lot of excitement around uh, the much anticipated and imminent launch of SGI's portal project, as well as the Maroon University. So I want to spend this time kind of addressing four big questions so that people can have a better understanding of the portal project. So I'll just list the four large kind of buckets that we'll cover today. One is the vision and need for and the realities, the contemporary realities that motivate the portal project. The second is, um, what are some of the crucial issues and questions or provocations that we intend to grapple with and ideally come to some consensus around? The third being the formation, like who's going to do what? what you know, who, who, who is participating in this portal project? And um, what's the rationale for inviting a, a compilation of artists, activists, and scholars? And then the last, what's a theory of change for kind of investing both the intellectual and emotional labor, bringing um, folks together with a a vision for something in the future. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. So how does that sound, Barbara? Sounds great. So I guess let's start with one. Um, Given your vast organizing and academic work and the myriad of tables that you already kind of participate in and struggle around for transformative justice, what motivated the idea of the Portal Project? I mean, we're in such an amazing moment, and it's a moment of sort of peril and radical possibility. I think all of us are, are trying to figure out how can we do our best work? How can we make our best contribution? And most importantly, how can we collectively figure out how to name this moment 
and how to advance the cause of freedom and justice at, at a time when it's it's very much in danger, right? I mean, we, we've never achieved the pinnacle of freedom um, that any of our ancestors imagined or that we imagined, but we feel it feels like a threat even to the modicum of rights and resources that we've been able to push for. But it also feels like a moment where something's got to give, right? So I was inspired by uh, our friend Arundhati Roy's beautiful essay, Pandemic as Portal. And that sat with me for a while, you know, thinking about just what does that mean? And it's really the flip side of Naomi Klein's notion of disaster capitalism, right? In times of crisis and disaster and chaos, predatory capitalists come in to maximize agendas that they wouldn't have been able to advance in normal times. We can also think the opposite is possible. It's possible for those of us who are agitating and organizing and uh, demanding a more just society can have certain openings in moments of crisis as well. And so the COVID pandemic jolted all of us and, and, and put us into this kind of suspended animation. The anti-racist protests following George Floyd's murder, uh, coupled with the train wreck of a presidency that we've endured for the last four years. I mean, all of those feel like they created a kind of um, conjuncture. But so what do we do in that moment? And many of us have marched and protested and written and all that. But I always feel, you know, how can we bring to bear the work that we do as scholars and researchers? And how do we simultaneously acknowledge the enormous reservoirs of knowledge in community and activist circles? And so the Portal Project is really yet another attempt to bring those two thinking and action communities together to put together some of the pieces of the puzzle to analyze of the mess we're in, and more importantly, to map our way out. And so we're hoping that collective findings, words, and and frameworks of inspiration will emerge from um, tackling some of the social injustices uh, of our time through through the Portal Project. Well, you mentioned um, the importance of bringing these activists and, and academics together to really think through some of the pressing questions how is the portal project organized? Like around what themes are you trying to, are you trying to address everything? Maybe we can just talk about the, the organization of, of the, the thematics. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in some ways we are trying to address everything in the sense that we want to talk about systemic problems and systemic change, right? How do we tackle that seemingly daunting task? So we want to have three entry points. And I'm reminded of my, my dear friend, Ruthie Gilmore, has a new book coming out called Change Everything. And it kind of, it, you know, it, it, it catches you um, by surprise, maybe, you know, when you say change everything, it sounds so overwhelming. But things are all interconnected. So I think there's many ways to walk into the question of how do we change a society? Uh, what needs to be changed? And we've seen reform struggles in the past that serve as sort of band-aids placed on gaping wounds or you know, basically putting a finger in one hole in the dam and then having another bigger one sprout right next to you. So we have to look at the big picture. But there are three points of entry. Uh, One is prisons, police, and the carceral state, uh, really exploring the questions that that abolitionist scholars and organizers have been posing uh, around this crisis of mass targeted incarceration of Black and Brown communities. Uh, We have more people in prison than any society in history. It's, it's absolutely gut-wrenching. But how does that link to a whole set of other questions and systems? For example, economic injustice, not a lot of rich people being thrown in prison. It's poor and working class people being thrown in prison, which gets us to the second point of entry to this conversation about 
systemic change, which is economic democracy. I'm going to actually ask you to say a little bit about (laughs) that in a minute, because you've taught me so much. But economic democracy invites us to to think and rethink and analyze racial capitalism, to think and rethink uh, and analyze economic disparity and the insatiable quest for profit and wealth uh, that has so distorted the distribution of resources in this country. And then finally, uh, climate justice. And climate justice really is confronting an existential question. You know, the, the, the climate is under assault by the way that we've organized our societies, and we are not going to have this planet in the way that we now have it and enjoy it uh, if we persist in these practices. So all three of these are very large, fundamental questions of justice and injustice in our society. And so we're using them as entry points to look at how they're connected to each other and to really ask the question, what does a just transition look like? Like, what does transformational justice look like? If we really move toward a society where, as Angela Davis says, prisons are obsolete, what else has to change in our society to make that viable, to make that possible, to make that sustainable from education to all kinds of practices of harm reduction being put in place, to having people have resources that they currently don't have. And similar kinds of connecting questions can be asked of of those two other areas as well. I'm very excited about this project, and a lot of people are, because I think many of us, we've done our activism, we've kind of done manageable activism. and, And sometimes we avoid the big daunting questions that seem unanswerable. But I'm convinced that together, we can, in fact, answer them. That's ambitious, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm standing you. with you. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's a good ambition. Before you ask the next question, can I ask you that question, maybe just to elaborate more than, more than I was able to, about this notion of economic democracy? Because really, that could have been our portal of entry, if you will, to so many other questions. And you've done such important work on solidarity economies and co-ops, these alternatives to the current dominant mode uh, of economic transaction. Yeah, I mean, economic democracy is kind of how I think about the, the problem, I guess. It's, it's a solution to the problem in many ways. And so if you understand racial capitalism as fundamentally the, the, the crux of the problem that is creating these the structural conditions by which these hierarchies are produced and reproduced, right? Both racial hierarchies, gendered hierarchies, hierarchies ar- around class and so forth. If we understand that to be true and we understand that capitalism is a system whereby the elite, the, the capital owns labor. We have a wage labor society, right? And we understand that the only way that is sustained is through extraction because the goal of capitalism is profit, right? That's just a basic and overly simplified understanding. If we understand that to be true, then economic democracy is the opposite, essentially. In economic democracy, the laborers, the workers own capital. They own their own labor. They set their working conditions. And so when we think about today the informal economy and the large proportion of black and brown people in the United States and even exponentially globally, 
that are working outside of these formal boundaries. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, except that those outside of those formal boundaries, those black and brown bodies are criminalized, right? But one thing that they're doing is they own their own labor, but that labor gets criminalized. So if we flip the system, this capitalist system, and create mechanisms whereby people can work and create the conditions under which they work, um, create a system of exchange. Some would say, well, it's still a market system. It's like, well, no, not a capitalist market system. If we understand markets as just a, as a means of exchange, of provisioning, yeah, we could, that, that's true. People still have demands. And there are other people that can still supply things, but it's through solidarity. It's through an agreed upon mechanism that is not extraction and it's not profit maximization, right? So that's, that's at its core when we talk about economic democracy. And many examples of, you know, experiments that are going on, right? Yeah, no, I mean, there's often when we talk about capitalism, it seems unassailable, right? But at the same time, that that political economic system, which is just an idea, it's an ideology, right? It's the dominant ideology at the moment, but others can prevail and they are prevailing at local levels, right? Um, Whether we're talking about the Madrigan in Spain, which is, you know, even with some of its problems, it's a vision for what could be. It is a practice that has been around since the 1950s, at least there. But in the United States, we have plenty of worker cooperatives. We have um, Cooperation Jackson, which is not just a cooperative, but it's an ecosystem. And that's how we really have to think about economic democracy. We're not talking about one enterprise. We're really talking about building an ecosystem of cooperatives, a cooperative ethos, whereby cooperatives are doing business with cooperatives, We are talking about uh, participatory budgeting processes and kind of a democratic decision-making, participatory economics. I mean, there are a lot of terms that we use for for kind of describing this. And right here in Chicago, we have Shy Fresh Kitchen, which is perhaps one of the more exciting examples, because this is an enterprise. they, They make food, um, and they emerged during the beginning of the pandemic. They actualized their vision to provide healthy, prepared food to various institutions. But they're not just a food enterprise. These are five Black women formerly incarcerated that are owners of this enterprise and expanding. They just bought their own building in Inglewood, and they're growing. They're bringing in new worker owners. So that's an important example. And that's just one of many But it's important to point to the possibilities on the ground, because through the process of organizing, they were able to create this enterprise. And I think as people see this, they start to realize that this is possible, that we don't have to work under the conditions in which we're working. So I think it's extremely important that economic democracy and the solidarity economy are things that we're grappling with, along with the resist work that we're doing and we're doing well. We need to do that rebuild work. They have to happen together. I mean, so that's one element of this, right, in terms of building a more democratic, egalitarian, participatory economic kind of set of relationships. And we'll grapple with some of those questions. Um, But since the summer, I think the, the concept of abolition has become more popular than it had been, although people have been working on this, as you said, Angela Davis, Ruth Gilmore and others for for decades. 
how do you see that fitting here? So that's a that's one of the the the, the issues we're going to grapple with. What what do you imagine coming of that? You know, the movement for Black Lives, which emerged out of the Black Lives Matter moment uh, in really 2013, when Trayvon Martin was murdered by a vigilante, and when Mike Brown was murdered in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, in August of 2014, that movement has given urgency and energy and momentum to an ongoing demand, complaint, grievance, uh, point of rage for African-American communities uh, in in this country that goes back to the time of enslavement. I mean, Ella Baker, who I wrote about, who was organizing in the 1930s and 40s, led campaigns around police violence and brutality in New York City. One of my formative experiences, political experiences, was the Detroit Rebellion in 1967. I was 10 years old, and that was um, sparked by an instance of police violence, as were many of the rebellions it had in 1960. So, you know, even though we talk now about the issue of police prisons and the carceral state, and it has taken new form uh, and has expanded, this has been a key pillar of Black freedom movement organizing for as long as any of us can remember. And I don't just mean living memory. Uh, I mean, for as long as we have been documenting Black people resisting in this country. So it's not new, but we do have in this period of late capitalism, a acceleration of incarceration, of surveillance, of control and containment, particularly of Black, poor, and working class bodies. And that reality has inspired many people to raise serious, sober, persistent critiques of police and policing and prisons in a very fundamental way and ask the question, what role do those institutions function in our society? Of course, commonly tracing policing back to slave patrols and so forth. Many people have come to the conclusion that abolishing police and prisons as we know them is the only truly just resolution. That doesn't mean there is no accountability. That doesn't mean there is no security. That does not mean that we should not take measures to prevent harm. But it means the institutions of prison and policing as we know them have served a certain function that has been racist and violent uh, from the very beginning and that we are better than that. We have to hope for better than that for our people and for the society. And so that's kind of the proposition of abolition. And as I said before, People who have taken that challenge very seriously talk about all the other things that have to also occur. You know, Ruthie Gilmore talks about you have to build in order to abolish. And we know this from the abolitionist movement around slavery. I mean, there were some people who got on board with abolishing slavery, which, you know, who everybody should, right? I mean, but um, the question then became what happens next? And for some actual abolitionists at that time, nothing just in slavery, and then you're on your own. And others were saying, no, 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 we have to ensure rights and resources. There was a demand for land. There was a demand for compensation. Uh, Some people argue for compensation for the former slaveholders, but of course the just demand was for compensation for formerly enslaved people. So once slavery was abolished, then the whole question became repair, restitution, uh, resources, what is the active agenda of justice? And so in this moment, the abolitionist movement also is asking and, and saying, you know, what we have to build at the same time 
that we talk about uh, dismantling. So it is really a divest invest model. Uh, it is an abolish build model. And that's what we want to dive you know, more deeply into because any demand when it becomes widely popularized, right, can get reduced of its nuance, its richness, its radicalism. It's the crux of the matter. I mean, the leveraging of state control over people's lives, you know, what behavior gets punished and what behavior gets rewarded is all regulated through police and prisons. And so it's legal to let a homeless person freeze to death at a bus stop, but it's illegal for a person to take from Whole Foods if their kids are at home hungry and they don't have a job. So that's a skewed moral universe. But our current criminal justice system, you know, reconciles those kind of skewed moral equations um, in ways that many of us would not. And we want to interrogate all that in the process of talking about uh, abolition. I would actually push a little further because I think it then we're talking about these ideas or these issues in silos in some regard, but to interrogate what our system allows and disallows and the the decrepit moral fabric that it it builds on and creates. The decrepit moral fabric. (laughs) (laughs) See, Barbara. Um, I mean, you, you can't really think of changing that system in capitalism. I think it has to be said again and again, because it's not just by chance that this project is organized around economic democracy, abolition, and climate justice, right? That for folks to really grapple with what would need to change such that the rights of Whole Foods supersedes the rights of a woman freezing at a bus stop, you know, it's not just a moral question, it's it's our political economic question as well that is tied into our injustice system. Um, And we have to kind of grapple with all of those things simultaneously, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this project would be a disaster if we retreated to our single issue silos. One of the reasons we chose these three entry points into the question of just transition is that they're, they're all layered. They're porous. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. You really have to do some intellectual somersaults in order to talk about climate change and not talk about race and empire, right? Without talking about greed uh, and profiteering. You know, so all of these questions lend themselves to a very expansive, capacious interpretation. And then we want to have activists in the mix. This is about the content, but it's also about a process. You know, what does it mean to have Rich Wallace, who has worked with uh, equity and transformation people in the informal economy, um, here in Chicago, at the table while we're talking about, you know, Thomas Piketty's book, while we're talking about uh, understanding uh, disaster capitalism, while we're talking about understanding carcerality and, and abolition theories and so forth. So it means we're recognizing that we are going to figure out the world that we're in, the mess that we're in in this moment, you know, by respecting and honoring many, many different ways of knowing the world. Uh, and then together, we just might achieve some insights that can help us navigate our way forward. One of the big questions that I'm constantly just kind of grappling with, and one day I believe deeply and the other days I'm less less confident, is this deliberative process. I do believe that we collectively will get much further, that bringing the um, organizers and academics and artists together, that that will be a generative process. 
I am a little kind of uncertain just in myself in terms of how that deliberative process will kind of evoke the answers that we need. There was something about this design that let you, that, you know, you believed, you must believe deeply because you initially started this and I jumped on board very quickly. And perhaps you can ground that in history in terms of, are there examples in which just through these deliberative processes, we actually did what was necessary or we can envision what's necessary and then we can kind of, that can be manifest. Well, yeah, I mean, there are many examples in history, and I would say at every point when social movements have advanced, or even when intellectuals have articulated new insights, there has been a collective process. I mean, we're trained as academics to package our work in a way that presents it as our own individual brilliance, but we are always borrowing, collaborating, mixing you know, in order to figure out new frameworks and new understandings and new insights. So I think the examples are everywhere. I will say this, my own experience of doing, for lack of a better term, intellectual work, really trying to rigorously think about large concepts and and figure things out. A lot of that has happened outside of the academy. It has happened in the Free South Africa movement, which I was involved in for many years with uh, comrades from South Africa, many of whom had not had formal academic training because schools had been suspended for many years when, at the height of the resistance movement there. People involved in labor organizing and, and other forms of, of, of resistance, other forms of movement building work where deep, deep thinking has gone on and not only in academic uh, spaces. So I think part of the excitement of this project, you know, again, is to bring together people from all these, all these different areas we're calling them working groups, but we want to be very creative in how we approach that. We want to be very expansive and inclusive. And the other piece of the project, which is a bit of a separate project, but we hope this will flow into it, is something we're calling the Maroon University, which will take off this summer in a series of institutes in which we really want to experiment not only with collective thinking, but creative pedagogies, interrogating the epistemologies, the the theories of knowledge that we, you know, so unquestioningly embrace in the academy sometimes, you know, and really open up a lot of possibilities for new forms of learning. Those kinds of experiments were tested and um, deployed in a project that Ella Baker worked on in the 30s called the Worker Education Project. There's a new documentary coming out on Polly Murray. Polly Murray uh, queer, non-binary, lawyer, activist, socialist, uh, ally of Ella Baker also worked in that worker education project. And they engaged in all kinds of experiments in terms of adult learning with semi-literate students, uh, workers, immigrants, and others. And it was a very exciting time for them as organizers and educators. So the Maroon University Project is kind of the other the other half of this. Do you want to um, give away any of the kind of participants that you're imagining (laughs) sitting around the table? You know, we, I mean, I've done this work for a long time. You've done this work for a long time. And um, there are a lot of people that we've been in conversation with over many years about some of these issues and both in the activist community and, you know, and people who've worked in, in universities who write books, who scholar activists of various sorts. So we're very excited that Angela Davis will be a part of the program uh, for the year. Uh, the writer and uh, climate justice activist Naomi Klein will be joining us. Robin D.G. Kelly uh, will be a part of it. 
uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor, whose wonderful book on racism and housing was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize in history. So, you know, a very exciting group of people, but as exciting as those people, you know, are the activists from the immigrant rights movement, activists from LGBTQ organizing, uh, activists from the climate justice movement who will also be very much a part of this. And so I think it will be a very dynamic uh, year with a very dynamic and growing constellation of people. And of course, the folks from Movement for Black Lives. Movement for Black Lives, of course, collaborators. I forgot to mention them. And we invite other people. You know, we this is not a exclusive club. We need all the brain power we can muster. So we, we're figuring out how to best organize our collective thinking efforts. Uh, and we will have artists who will be doing short videos. And we hope to have some small publications that come out of this. But we also welcome folks who want to collaborate. We respect the work that is going on in many other uh, centers and institutes at UIC and around the country uh, that have similar goals and, and, and sensibilities. And so we want to pool our efforts as much as possible. We're excited. So when does it start? Uh, February 22nd, uh, we will launch and, um, you know, we will have a, a strong social media presence. Uh, we'll have some teasers, if you will, and uh, people will get a little preview of what we'll be working on. And then we'll have a, a bigger, more public launch in July. But we will also have public events along the way. And many of the people who might be listening to this will be invited to listen, to participate, uh, to, to make an offering. So. Um, Let's tackle the questions with an eye toward strategy and action. That is what this is an invitation to. Absolutely. No, I, it's, it's extremely exciting. I think having this opportunity to really think deeply about what that next system is or should be, what that transition from here to there could look like. Um, I think we, we, we don't have enough of these opportunities. So the energy that will be in that room will surely ignite a set of possibilities. Um, anything else we want to say about the Portal Project or the Maroon University? Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, what we hope will come out of this, it's we're calling it a, kind of a virtual think tank, but I don't want people to interpret from that that all we want to do is just sit around and chit-chat for a year. Uh, we want to be very focused. We want to be very geared uh, towards strategic analysis that activists and movements can use and deploy. And that's a reciprocal process of all of us bringing something to the table. And I do think the challenge is, is this, you know, when you asked me at the outset, and I think I gave a little bit of an incomplete answer. So oftentimes in activist circles, we feel uh, the urgency of the moment, we feel the need to act and respond to a rapidly changing situation. And sometimes stepping back and doing a deep dive analysis feels like a luxury when things are happening so quickly. And so this is an invitation to not step back from organizing, but to simultaneously carve out space for the analysis that we need in order to do the activist work uh, with maximum effect. And academic circles and in research circles, so often research is done in a vacuum and shared in a limited audience. It's produced in, in language that is not accessible beyond the academy. And so this is also an invitation for us to do that work differently and to do that work in service uh, to a greater good uh, and to movement. So I do have one other question or kind of a way of thinking about it. I mean, historically, the attention has been to the local, 
to like the understanding that you need to build kind of power locally. You need to build an infrastructure locally um, with the hope that there will be ripple effects that you will build a bunch of, you know, whether it's some type of federated model, but, you know, locally and then build out. Here, we're bringing folks from across the country together. Surely Chicago is well represented, but it's a national initiative. How, how are we imagining this kind of spreading at the same time as going in depth or kind of going deep in these other cities to have that kind of cumulative um, impact? Yeah, I mean, local work is the essence of, of certainly organizing work. You know, people who build relationships, who navigate the terrain that they walk and um, engage every day, figuring out how to change, you know, the communities that they live in, that is the heart and soul of political organizing and, and, and social justice organizing. But we live in a large and complex country, and we have to be able to connect the dots. We have to be able to look at trends that are happening nationally. Uh, we, we don't have the luxury to kind of cordon ourselves off and, and experiment in one little community while uh, you know policies are being made that are going to impact that community and many others. So both the relationship we have to each other through, you know, a national identity as complicated and fraught as it has been is one reason that we have to think nationally and globally. Uh, And and the other is that we learn from each other. So in parallel time, what people are trying to accomplish in Chicago, they're also trying to accomplish in Madison, in Atlanta, in Oakland, um, in New York, et cetera. So, uh, So I think both the interrelationship of power and policy and the parallel experiences uh, are ways that we think of that kind of dialectic between the national and the local. But that's also an invitation for me to say a little bit about the global, because this is a U.S.-focused project. And I know you, you know, have friends and family around the world and comrades and colleagues around the world, and I do too. And we understand that we live in a deeply, deeply interconnected world. And so often, elites are connected and power brokers are connected, and profit seekers are connected, corporations are connected, uh, but ordinary people are not. And we see each other in other parts of the world through, you know, kind of filtered lenses. So we want to build solidarity. We feel like the first year capacity of this program is going to be primarily U.S. focused, although we are inviting some colleagues from Brazil uh, to join us. But we hope that as we grow, we can incorporate uh, a more transnational analysis. Our, our colleague, uh, Nadine Neighbor, you know, has been very eloquent in, in reminding us it's not only uh, other struggles and other efforts in other places, but it's the relationship of the United States to countries around the world through its foreign policy, through militarism, um, through uh, corporate policies and, and policies of dispossession that we also have to factor into our analysis. So so we hope to do that, um, and especially as we as we grow our capacity. Excellent. Um, anything else? I think I think that pretty much <laughs> sums it up. Unless you have some concluding words. Well, do you have any other thoughts, Stacy? Because I I do really appreciate. I mean, we frame this as you interviewing me, but I really consider you, you know, a partner and a collaborator in this. And if there's anything else you want to say, or reasons that you think this is important, that you. Uh, you know, we, we're delighted, I'm delighted and, and honored that you've chosen to invest time in this. But um, I, I wondered if there's anything you might want to also add in terms of the 
the hopes or importance of this project? I actually, I think I've said most, much of it, but I, I really see the transformative possibility of these types of projects. We don't know what will come of it, right? We, we're bringing together brilliant activists and, and brilliant scholars, um, and th- that, that's a con- combustible kind of opportunity. And we're at a moment in which capitalism, our political economy are vulnerable. We're at a moment in which people are open to new ideas. At the same time, I do believe there's a boundary to the ideas in which they're open to. So we have to be able to articulate them perhaps a little differently. We have to be able to demand them a little bit differently. We have this, but this is a strategic moment. And so we need this opportunity. This isn't just, in my mind, just a luxury of us coming together and doing the intellectual work. This is a necessity. So I'm proud to be a part of this. I'm proud that we're doing this at UIC, but it is a strategic moment. Um, that that this is happening, and I, the urgency is palpable. And the degree to which, and the reason I asked the last question is the way in which we're thinking up front about how this work will kind of manifest in different places. You know, in the in the cooperative world, we talk about the solidarity economy and the ecosystem, right? We talk about worker cooperatives, and people may not be very familiar with them. What's important is, although they may be small in any particular place, the goal is to, to scale out and to reach and connect, right, and build these networks. And I think we're doing that in the organizing world. And I think this is an opportunity to go deeper and build those roots, and those roots need to kind of continue to expand. So the people that are coming and participating, how they are able to bring stuff home, and practice, I think, is really, really important. Um, but again, this is this is the moment. We've talked about that in history in terms of those strategic moments, those moments in which you, you have to be poised and ready to act because um, they don't come often. The window will close. And so the window is open slightly. And so I believe this is a, a, a moment of, of building capacity. And this is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One final thing I did neglect to say is that, you know, we've been involved in something called Scholars for Social Justice that uh, Adam Getachew and Kathy Cohen and Sarah Haley and others, Dale Gore um, and our late colleague, Leith Mullings, you know, were very a part of. And it's an attempt to mobilize scholars in service of movement work. And we do really hope to um, enlist the leadership of the Scholars for Social Justice to work with us in this. I had a meeting with some of them earlier today, and they're very excited. So the, the work is very compatible and complements one another. So we hope that there's a close relationship there. Okay. Well, thanks. This is great. That's great. Many more conversations to come. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs>